Welcome to Living Chassidus. Together, let's live the Chassidus we learn. Welcome, everybody. Baruch Hashem, here we are for SAI 5781. I'm in it. Okay, I'll get shorter. That, that works too. Um, <laughs> no, just twist it like that. There we go. Thank you. Okay, so Baruch Hashem, here we are for SAI 5781. And. Um, we are preparing, I know we're a bit early, but we are preparing for Pesach because the whole wide world is preparing for Pesach. I'm sure we're feeling it in all ways, shapes, and forms. So we are here to discuss, um, we're here to kick off our first event for SAI, for Sphere Transformation. Last year, due to the current pandemic status, we were all stuck at home and we were all trying to figure life out. So our program last year was called Make It Count and how to make our time count. So this year, what we're doing is we are doing our regular sphere transformation, which entails reading from the um, Omer counting um, booklet from Raisim and Jacobson on a daily basis. Everyone's invited to join and we are providing everybody with a journal so you can have that um, and a pen and journal at least once a week. When you do so, you will be able to get a prize every two weeks we'll provide a prize and a fabrengan um and we'll continue to grow together and if you'd like any if you have any other questions you can feel free to contact us i also want to say a huge mazel tov to our sai director eliana she's a kala mazel tov mazel tov everybody um with that said you can check out our website if you have any faqs they're all answered over yonder and we will be adding everybody to the WhatsApp group very soon, Merit Hashem. So this past year, for our eight-year anniversary, we had an incredible event where we had a trivia kahoot. And one of the questions on our trivia kahoot is actually relevant to our speaker today. It turns out, by Hashkacha Pratis, we did not have this planned originally, but... That's how it always seems to work out. That we are lucky to generally always do our kickoffs with Rabbi Glick. So he became known as our kickoff rabbi. So thank you so much, Rabbi Glick. We are so lucky to have you and can't wait to enjoy this incredible for bringing. <laughs> okay. Thank you again for the opportunity once again. So kickoff rabbi i never thought I'd, I'd ever have a title that sounds so uh, sport oriented because that was never my my forte but i'll take it it's the only kickoff i'm ever going to be appointed to um so pesach is what are we saying governing for pesach zman right time of our freedom um what happened on pesach we went out of egypt and when we left Egypt, it was with a very specific objective and a very specific direction, which was Tavdun Eselakim Baharazir. We're going to Har Sinai to get 10 utterances, 613 commandments, and a book of rules that's this big. So, which part? Now, if we stop and take a look at any, any <laughs> minute, of the day, let alone an hour of the day of life as a Torah observant Jew, 
it's amazing. It's fulfilling. It's rewarding. It's all kind of incredible things. But freedom? Yeah, I don't know if that's the word I would choose to describe receiving the mitzvahs and shulchan aruch and etc. Right. So the question is, what is freedom? Because when we say this is the festival of freedom and this is the time when we went and began our journey from Mitzrayim to Hasine to get the Torah, obviously it is freedom. We're not questioning the validity of that. We're questioning now. We're going to have to understand what really is freedom. Um, and maybe we'll open it up to, to suggestions. And the truth is when it comes to freedom, it's not... <laughs> I think there are lots and lots of responses that are all going to be equally valid because freedom can legitimately mean a lot of different things, you know, and I don't think there's necessarily one that's more true or less true. Or more. I mean, there are some things that, you know, are obviously going to be debatable, but I think there are many, many legitimate, true responses to the question of what does freedom really mean? And there's going to be one specific one that we're going to focus on. Um, or that I'm going to focus on, but do, does anyone want to suggest what, what freedom means? Anyone? To be able to be your truer self. You had to ruin it and jump right to the point right away. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and you know, it's it sounds good, but I want to talk about that in a little more detail because the truth is, you know, it sounds nice to say, uh, you know, our ability to, to be our truest self, and it sounds nice and inspiring and warm and fluffy and everything else. But it's actually a lot more than that. The, the fact that living true to ourselves, to who we really are, and, and I want to talk about this at a couple of levels, at a philosophical level and at a biological and natural level, it's profoundly important. And it really... It, it, it impacts us and has the ability to affect us. And I hate these, I hate the fact that these words have become so cliched. And there's so many words like this that are such effective words to communicate specific things, but they've become so cliched and overused that it's like a shame to use them. But really at a very existential level, this freedom, it, it has a, a very deep impact and affects who we are, it affects our existence and affects everything about our lives. It affects us physiologically. It affects the things that are in our blood. It affects our well-being. It affects, you know, our physical health, mental health, emotional health, everything, really. <laughs> and, you know, just to, to sort of illustrate and get a bit of a feeling for it before we narrow in and talk about it in terms of ourselves, right, if you think, picture... A free animal, an animal that's living free. What do you picture? What do you picture when you think of an animal that's living free? Grass. I know, meadow, blue sky, and wild. Right. And what about the actual animal? What animals? Uh, sorry? I mean, it depends on the animal. I'm thinking of a cow. <laughs> <laughs> Running without an instruction. Nice. But they probably have to deal a lot with like, you know, predators and like, you know, it's a lot harder, like, you know, survival wise. Yeah. That, that, and that, that's exactly the point. And that's why, you know, it's, 
it's the it's true and it's real and we'll see the because everything that's true and everything that's real is complex right nothing that's actually real nothing in real life is ever just black and white simple and that's the way it is everything's always complex and there's always yeah we <laughs> <coughs> would probably get dull pretty quickly too but it sounds nice for sure and it'll be nice for a few days for sure um but you know the the reality of things that is is that they are complex and good things always come at a price and at a cost and the best things always come at the steepest cost steepest price um and you know oftentimes we think of people think of freedom what's freedom i mean certainly in terms of you know politics and all of that which we don't want to go anywhere near um or the, the, I, I would say it in different words, just to address the, the concept of freedom more directly, is the freedom to choose, right, without someone else telling us what to do, aka no rules is another way of putting it, which is ultimately the same thing, if you want to go, the question is, do you want to go libertarian, do you want to go full anarchist, right, but <laughs> I think we should stay far away from that. Um, <coughs> <laughs> I can handle it. Um, <clears throat> right, but freedom, that's not the only kind of freedom, because there's freedom, which means, you know, the, the ability to choose what we want without someone telling us to do without anyone telling us what we have to do and what we can't do, etc. Which is probably the most obvious and literal thing that freedom refers to for most people. But let's go back to the animal, right? Because we have a very specific image of what an, an animal that's living free looks like, right? It's, it's in the wild, it's in the grass or in the jungle, depending on its natural habitat. It's running, it's eating. Frankly, it might be running from a predator, like we said, right? A deer that's living in the wild, a gazelle. I mean, most animals, except for the apex predators, except for lions and tigers, depending whether you're in the plains or in the jungle, are at times going to be running from something. Right. So an animal that's free, we picture them. One of the first things that probably comes to mind is running, because that's what animals do in nature. They run. And 50% of the time or more, they might be running from something, but they're running. Now, let's just say, for example, we take an animal. You know, I'm just going to make up some scenario that probably doesn't make sense practically, but just to illustrate the point, we take an animal, you know, that's naturally it, it hunts and it, it eats meat, or maybe it's an herbivore and it eats grass, whatever it is. And you know, we, we get close to it and we would befriend it. And maybe we get in captivity or we find a way to do it without getting it into captivity. And we expose it to foods that it's not naturally, you know, supposed to be eating, but foods that really taste good. Maybe we, you know, teach an animal that eats meat to eat meat that's, you know, maybe, you know, sweetened with sugar or who knows what, right? But cheesecake, <laughs> um, you're maybe like a calf, my, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just uh, gave away a lot about ourselves. The first thing that came to mind for me was meat and for you was cheesecake. So, right, and let's say that we take this animal and we expose it to this food that is not natural for it to eat and it tastes good. And so after a few exposures and after sort of trying it a few times, it starts to develop a taste. 
same way that we would. And then you take this animal and, you know, and every day you come to where it lives, I don't know, and you put out a pile of this food, a pile of this sweetened meat or cheesecake or whatever it is. And these animals in the wild and it tastes good and it's sweet. So they come when you put it out there and they eat it. And, you know, it's, it's not that great for their health. And maybe they don't go hunting as much and they don't run around as much and their joints start to get a little bit stiff and they start to get a little bit out of shape and lose interest in the things that are natural for them to do. And they don't, you know, really fulfill their role in the ecosystem anymore because they're busy getting lazy and eating this food that's making them, you know, have a food coma afterwards because full of sugar. What was that? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the point. I mean, that's where it comes from. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm putting, taking what we can all relate to in one form or another and just putting it on the animal. Now, the image you have, this animal, no one's forcing it to do anything, right? No one's forcing it to eat this food. It's choosing to eat it because it tastes good. But is this the image that you have in your mind of an animal that's free? It's not at all. Technically, the animal's free, right? It's, 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 it's living an anarchist life. No one's telling it what to do. It's doing exactly what it feels like, when it feels like. But this isn't the image we have of what a free animal looks like. And there's a reason for that. And that's because this animal is not living true to its nature. You know, and we can take another example, which is animals in captivity. Now there, it's the reason I chose this example was because here the animal truly is free, technically speaking. No one's forcing it to do anything. But this is not what a, what, not what a free animal does. Is it free? Technically, yes. But it's not the image we have in our mind of a free animal because it's not the way that a truly free... This animal has been, you know, it's been, I don't know what the right word would be, but it's been spoiled. We've affected it. We've, we've gotten it into bad habits and trained it with bad habits that are stopping it from living true to itself in the way it's naturally supposed to. You know, let's, we could take animals in captivity to take it to more of an extreme just to illustrate the idea, you know, all, all the way. Animals in captivity, I mean, they, they have nutritious food at the perfect frequency, right? When they feed, I mean, it depends. The zoos might feed the animals more on the schedule of what the visitors, the guests, what works guests well for guest admissions and ticket sales and for the well-being of the animal. But hopefully they feed the animals at a schedule that's somewhat good for them. They have, you know, free dental. They have medical care. They have all their needs met. You know, life in the wild, even for an apex predator, even for a lion and a tiger that are not hunted by anything. Yeah, lions maybe by hyenas if they're on their own, but life's really, really difficult out in the wild. You know, they can, lions can go hungry and thirsty. And even for lions that are apex predators and they hunt in groups and they can, you know, really, they're, they're good at hunting. But the prey is not always abundant when they're hungry. And even when it is, it's still, it's not easy, even for lions, even for a, a group of really, effective hunters of lions hunting as a group it's still not easy to catch prey you know the animals that they're hunting are very experienced at running for their lives quite literally and they're good at it you know in the vast majority of times that lions chase an animal the animal gets away they can go hungry they can go thirsty their habitat tends to be quite dry and a lot of times they get their hydration from meat 
And if the hunting's not going well, they get hungry, they get dry, um, they get dehydrated. They live out in the sun. Even lions get, you know, can, can get attacked by hyenas if they're out on their own at the wrong time in the wrong place, let alone any other animal that, you know, if you're talking about an herbivore, like a, they're being hunted by every carnivore that's around. Life's really difficult. You know, animals don't have a very long lifespan out in the wild, a very long life expectancy. If you would take a hypothetical life expectancy of these animals, you know, it's, I was at a bear show with my kids a couple years ago. And I think they said for these, these, this breed of bears, species of bears, whatever it was, I'm guessing brown bears, I think, I'm not sure. They, I don't know what kind of bear it was. Anyways, they said that in, in captivity, the, not in captivity, because it wasn't a zoo. This was like a family that had been raising bears like for generations. And these, these weren't your typical animals in captivity. I mean, the people who were doing the show were sharing ice cream with the bear and like the bear was eating the ice cream and then they were eating from it. It wasn't my cup of tea, but you know, it's, I mean, these were bears that were truly loved and well cared for. And these bears lived for like, they said, I think their life expectancy living here and they didn't, it wasn't in captivity. It was for them, it was part of their family and they really were was something like 30 years and out in the wild, it was like five. And the reason the bears are living for five years, their average life expectancy for five years is not because they're less healthy. They're plenty healthy out in the wild. It's because sooner or later, they're going to get eaten by something or, you know, they're going to get injured. Something's going to happen. <clears throat> so the hypothetical healthy life expectancy of a healthy animal in the wild is very different to the actual real life expectancy because the real life expectancy expects that give or take a few years down the road, almost every animal is going to get eaten sooner or later, including lions and including tigers, which are apex predators. So they don't have any predators technically, but you know, life's tough out in the wild. And so animals, so living out in the wild is, first of all, it's very dangerous. It's, extraordinarily hard work you know on the occasion that they do get lucky and actually you know get some food to eat they have first of all just think about how hard they worked just for that one catch to catch that food and then for every time they catch they probably hunt 20 times that they don't catch something so they have to chase and run and hunt 20 times for every meal that they actually eat and the numbers i don't know i'm making up 20 but it's a lot and they're always at risk. Life in the wild is difficult. It's dangerous. But the fact is, that's what we picture when we picture an animal that's free because these animals were, everything has a purpose. Every object has a purpose. Every person has a purpose and every animal has a purpose, right? When you look at, Let's say you see a video of, of an animal hunting another animal out in the wild. You know, sometimes it can be a little bit disturbing and, you know, might feel bad for the animal that gets hunted. But you're mostly not, <coughs> not likely to get angry at the animal that's doing the hunting. You feel bad for the other one and it can make you feel uncomfortable and disturbing. But you, generally, most people are not going to feel angry. Why are you not feeling angry? It's not doing anything wrong. This is literally its job. Its function is, and every ecosystem needs to be balanced. And as hard as it is to watch and as disturbing and difficult as it is, you know, Baruch Hashem, we're so lucky to live in a world where these kind of things are, you know, so foreign, largely. 
but it's necessary. And you know, if if an apex predator stops hunting or gets extinct, the whole ecosystem gets thrown out of balance, and nothing's going to be better off. Every animal's going to suffer. The plants are going to get out of whack. Everything goes out of balance. Every single animal in a <coughs> in an ecosystem has a function to play in that ecosystem to keep things balanced and an animal when an and when a predator is hunting for food it's literally doing its job that's what it was created to do it was created with the instinct instincts and the anatomy and the physiology and the tools to do that and it was born and trained by its parents to do that and nature needs it to do that and the ecosystem needs it to do that it's doing its job it's doing the right thing right so when an animal has a, a purpose and a function in an ecosystem it's designed anatomically to do that right different animals have different anatomy which enables them to fulfill their role in the ecosystem properly and because each animal has a distinct role and a function in eco ecosystem it has different <coughs> different anatomy and different physiology and they're supposed to do the things they do. They might be disturbing, but you don't get angry. It's just it's literally doing its job. It's not doing anything wrong. So when an animal is out in the wild and it's living a difficult life and it's at risk and it's in danger and it's working hard, it is living the life that is true to its purpose. It's fulfilling its function. It's fulfilling its purpose. And that's reflected naturally in the fact that it's living the life that it was anatomically and physiologically designed to live. Thank you very much. You know, and biologists will, will, will break down and look at animals and, and figure out how and why their anatomy and their physiology matches exactly with their role and with their habitat and with where they fit into the ecosystem and whether they're, uh, you know, a predator or prey and all these things. The, the, the animals are, are literally designed by Hashem anatomically and physiologically to fulfill each of these roles. You know, so this goes very deep. The animals were designed by Hashem to do these things. And yes, when an animal is, sit, when an, a lion is in the zoo, and it's fed every day and it's taken care of by vets and by, you know, and it has its health taken care of and it's not at any risk and it doesn't have to work hard for its food. The fact is, it's an easier life. It's a safer life. But all the things that it was anatomically designed to do, it's not doing. So we have clear evidence in the anatomy and physiology of the animal that it is not supposed to live this life. This life is not its function. It's not fulfilling its purpose in this life by living this way. It's not fulfilling its function by living this way. It wasn't designed to live this way. And you know what's fascinating is that there's pretty strong evidence that animals in captivity have a relatively high incidence of clinical depression. Yeah, their needs are met, they're taken care of, they get to sleep when they want, they don't have to hunt. Their life is easy, but by definition of the fact that that's not the life they were designed to live, it's not good for them. Correct. And, and that's built into their physiology. And so their physiology results, the fact that the life they're living, whilst easy and safe, clashes with their physiology it leads to clinical to physiologically clinical depression 
Not all the time, but a relatively high incidence. Right? So it's, <coughs> you know, <coughs> it's natural to correlate. We think of freedom, right, as the freedom to choose what we want. But the question is, what do we really want? Right? And there's, there's what we want consciously. Right. And the fact is, you know, someone might say, yes, I know all of that. It's all fine and dandy and nice and good. But the fact is, I want to sit on the couch and eat potato chips and read comics or watch Netflix. That's what I want to do. Like, that's my choice. It's like you might want to do that in your conscious mind. Right. I'm not saying that a person doesn't really want to do that. It depends what you mean by really want. The person might truly want to do that with their conscious mind. But the fact is that will invariably, without exception, obviously I'm ill at, you know, taking an extreme case of someone who, who just spends all day, every day sitting on the couch, eating potato chips and watching Netflix, they will invariably end up in a very poor state of well-being. They will be physically unfit. They will almost invariably end up emotionally unwell they will end up unhappy it's it's just a matter of time it's a question of how long they will invariably end up unhappy the the likelihood of clinical depression is probably going to skyrocket over time because at one level they are free in that this is what they're choosing to do but if we think about what choice really is this person is choosing to do these things because their decision-making apparatus in their head has been misled and co-opted by things that are destructive. And yes, they're making a choice. Yes, technically it's freedom, but it's a freedom that's been distorted and tainted the same way that when we talked about the animal in the wild, and that's why I use this example rather than the animal in captivity, the animal in the wild that you've introduced and given the chance to develop a taste for food that's bad for it and food that makes it lazy, et cetera, and all these things, no one forced anything. Technically speaking, the animal's free. But this is not the picture that anyone comes up with when asked to picture what a free animal looks like. What's an animal that's free look like? Because that's not what an animal that's free is supposed to do. The only time an animal that's living free is going to behave like that is if it has been, I, I don't even know what, I'm trying to think of the, the precisely correct word for it, but it has been spoiled. It has had its... Domesticated. Domesticated. Would include a lot of that by definition, but domesticated is not quite the word I'm looking for. It it's been misled and exposed to things that are hijacking its decision making apparatus. Because decision making apparatus is also a physiological thing, right? We make decisions with our brains, and decision making is also a physiological. It's a neurochemical process that happens in our brains, in our minds, and they're not designed to make these decisions. Right, We make bad decisions and these animals in the wild, technically free, are making these bad decisions that are destructive for it because something has been introduced into its experience that's misdirecting 
the anatomy and physiology of its brain to make decisions that it wasn't supposed to make and that it wasn't designed to make and that are destructive for it, right? So the experiences that we've exposed it to, if we think of freedom as a, you know, a very philosophical thing, technically it's free. But if we get all the way down to it in, in a very tangible physiological and anatomical way, what we've done is, is damaged or co-opted the decision-making apparatus in the brain and in the mind physiologically. And we've twisted it and, and, and you know, coerced it into making decisions that it wasn't supposed to make. It wasn't naturally designed to make and decisions that are destructive for it. You know, and in a way, I guess it's almost kind of like a smaller scale version of addiction, right? When someone has an addiction, philosophically, technically, they have free choice. But the bottom line is, it's far from being that simple. You know, the extent of choice that a person, you know, that a person in a state of active addiction has is, is at the least, let's say, extraordinarily limited that you know it's not when when an addict make you know makes a choice to indulge their addiction to use whatever it is that their addiction is with it's not the same kind of choice that we generally refer to why because the decision making apparatus has been co-opted by something are they technically making the decision technically they are and philosophically they are but even neuroanatomically, they're not really, right? And, what, and, and the truth is that when we <coughs> make decisions that are destructive for us, that out in the wild, we would never make because we've been exposed to things that we're not naturally supposed to be exposed to, or this animal that's in the wild has been exposed to something that it's not supposed to be exposed to in the wild, and we've interfered and exposed it to something that has now co-opted its decision-making apparatus and is now pressuring it and you know coercing it to make decisions that it shouldn't have been in a position to make because it wasn't naturally supposed to ever be exposed to this in the first place. At a, at a even at a at a neurological level, it's not it, it's not the freedom that it's supposed to have. It's philosophically freedom because no one's forcing it technically. But the fact is that the freedom to choose as it was designed to function naturally in a natural state in, in the wild is not what it's doing right now. So it's not truly free in the most natural sense, really, because it's, it's, it's had something introduced to its experience that's messing up its decisions that it was not supposed to ever, that was never supposed to happen naturally. So it's not <coughs> really that, that animal that's been exposed to this and habituated and now developed this habit is not actually behaving in a way that's free as it was designed to by nature. It's philosophically free, but it's not truly naturally free. It's not even neuro neurologically free because it's had influences introduced into these processes that were not supposed to be there and it got messed up so freedom in, in, in it's it's not fluffy and this is reflected and because this is not the way that this animal was designed to live 
And that's reflected in the fact that the anatomy of a lion, for example, makes it very clear it was not designed to sit down and eat toffee-coated meat that's glazed with caramelized who knows what sauce, sweet and sour sauce. And, you know, it develops a taste and it enjoys it and sit there and eat tons of that and just, you know, get unfit and gain weight and get stiff joints. That's not what a lion was designed to live. And you know what's going to happen? The likelihood of that animal ending up depressed clinically is going to go from minuscule out in the wild to quite high. It's going to be unhealthy. Philosophically, it's free technically, but it's not really. And it's a freedom that is not the freedom it was designed to live. And it's reflected in the shape of its body. It's reflected in the behaviors that it was taught by its parents. It's reflected in its instincts. It's reflected in the, in the way it thinks and the way it naturally behaves and the way it reacts to things and its natural sleep cycle. <laughs> it's reflected in all of those things. And all of those things are not being matched and not being utilized in this new lifestyle. It's not living true to itself because its ability to think and behave freely in the way that it was naturally designed to has been messed up. And it's that it's not going to be good for the animal. It's not going to end up healthy for very long. It's not going to end up happy for very long. Exact same thing is true with people. You know, you know, talk about spiritually, even just physiologically, you know, it's, it's the, there, there are many reasons that are spoken about in Torah about what, what a person was created for, what we created for. But one of the things that we were created for, it says, is to be Hashem's partners in creation. Hashem created the world in a state in which it was ready for us to complete it. What does it mean to be partners in creation? Partners in creation means that we create. If we don't create, then we're not partners in creation. We're partners with the creator, but we're not partners in creation unless we're creating. And it literally says to be to be Hashem's partners in creation. So we're supposed to be creating something. Now, what are we be able to what are we able to create? We can't create anything. Because creation means the word create means to make something that used to not be there. That's what creating means. Right? When you say that someone's creative, what does it mean that someone's creative? It doesn't just mean that they're talented or gifted, because there are lots of people who are talented and gifted and not creative. Being creative is a very specific gift and talent. And when you say someone's creative, it means that they're able to come up with novel ideas, imagery, concepts, phenomena, whatever it is. They're able to come up with novel things that people haven't come up with before, right? People who are talked about it, described as being creative are often artistic. People can be creative also in thought. But being creative very specifically means coming up with things that weren't there before. That's what creative means. If you take something that was already there and make it better, that's also a talent, but it's not creativity. It's maybe analytical. It's improving. It, it's not creativity. Creative means making something that wasn't there. So what are we able to literally create? Because even a creative person is not literally creating. <coughs> Time. <clears throat> So to create means to take to make something exist that used to not exist. 
Now we can't do that with mass and energy. We can't bring matter into being, right? That, that, that happened once and it hasn't happened since and it can't happen since. It's laws of thermodynamics. You can't, in a closed system, which the universe is one, mass and energy can be neither created nor destroyed. You can change it from one form to another. You can't destroy, create or destroy anything. So what does it mean to create? We can introduce one more thing here that's gonna bring it all together. If when we say, if we're saying that creating means being Hashem's partners in creation, it makes sense that that's going to be related to something else we know that we know about our connection with Hashem. And very early on at the beginning of Bereshis, mankind is created in the image of Hashem. It makes sense that if among all animals, we are the one that's created in the image of Hashem, makes sense that that's going to have a lot to do with the fact that of all the creations, we're the one that's here to be Hashem's partner in creation. It makes sense that the fact that we're in the image of Hashem might be a part of that which makes us able to be his partners in creation. So the question is, what does it mean that we created in the image of Hashem? You know, Hashem doesn't have a face, Hashem doesn't have arms or legs or anything else. So Rashi says, you don't have to look very far. Rashi, when it says that we are created in the image of Hashem, Rashi says that means with the ability to understand, the ability to think. And if you, if you were to ask, it's, it's fascinating because if you would ask a biologist, what's the thing, there's a, a couple, probably two or three, the, the traits that make humans stand out from all, in their language, other animals, it's articulate speech. It's the ability to understand understand abstract ideas, um, both of which are related to consciousness. What's that? Discerning. Well, that has to do with 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 thinking, abstract thought, understanding. Right? Because animals can think. They can understand certain things, but they can understand concrete things, and you know, there's just like. A super fascinating example is there was some crazy research I heard about. It. it was so interesting. There was these, you know, these three-dimensional puzzles that they give people. It's like you have to try to like get one piece out of the other piece or whatever it is, these things that are like really, really hard. And they found that if you were to, you know, give one to a chimp and it's starting to work with it and you give another one to another chimp, each one's going to come in and they can see each other and each one's just going to do its thing and try to figure it out. If you put two people in a room and you give each of them one of these puzzles, or you put someone in a room and you give them a puzzle and they're trying, trying, trying to figure it out and another person comes in and imagine that you're that person, you walk in and someone gives you one of these things to do. What's the first thing you're likely to do is look at the other person and see like, what are they trying to do? What's going on? And if you see this person trying all these weird things and trying working so hard to try to figure out how to get it out, it could be that if you would just look at it and walk into the room yourself and look at it, you'd try a couple of things and get it out in 30 seconds. But because when you walk in, there's someone else who's working so hard and trying all these like twisted things, you're naturally going to think, and, and this, the, this is in the data, it's fascinating. People as a rule generally will think 
oh, well, obviously like it's really complicated and they've tried all the basic stuff and it didn't work. Otherwise they wouldn't be doing this. So now I'm going to try all this complicated, weird stuff as well. Cause obviously the basic stuff doesn't work. And sometimes the chimps end up getting it faster than people because they don't make those bonus. And just because the first chimp's trying something twisted, the other one comes in and tries to figure it out, but it, it's not able to think abstractly. Okay. Well, that one probably did this. That's already abstract thought. You're thinking about ideas. Humans are the only ones that can think abstractly in that way. And a lot of times it ends up getting us messed over, right? But the ability, and Rashi says, lahaskil, the ability to think about ideas, abstract thought. Animals can think, but they can think about concrete things. They can't think about abstract thought. They see something, they want to do it. They think about how to do it. They can't philosophize. They can't stop and think about what this one's thinking and that one's thinking, at least not consciously. And so the ability to think abstract ideas means we can have a sense of moral right and wrong in a way that animals don't. We can have a sense of purpose, a sense of, I really want to do this, but it's not the morally right thing for me to do. And therefore, really, I should do that. We can have a sense of ethics. We can have a sense of morals in a way that animals can't. That is Selim Elikim. Selim Elikim, Rashi says, is the ability to think and understand abstract ideas, which includes morality and ethics and right and wrong. Now, what that means is that we can be in a situation in which we would naturally and instinctively behave a certain way. And that's the way that we should, the trajectory that we should naturally follow is based on our instincts and our emotions. And so that's the natural direction and course of events. But because we have Selam Elikim, we have the ability to think, we can say, stop, hang on a second. That's my instinct. That's what my feelings are directing me to do. But is that the morally correct thing to do? Is this aligned with my purpose? Is this why I'm here? Is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this what Hashem wants me to do? Is this why Hashem put me here? And if the answer is no, hopefully what we do is say, okay, so then I'm going to do something different. And what we've just done is created an outcome that was not supposed to happen according to the natural trajectory. So we have just created a new outcome that wasn't supposed to happen. So we are now Hashem's partners in creation. Every time we achieve something, every time we make something happen that wouldn't have happened on its own, and the reason we did it and the way we were able to do that was because Selim Elikim, because we have this ability to think and to behave based on thought and understanding, not just instinct and feelings. The Tzalem Aleichim is what allows us to be Hashem's partners in creation. So we were created to be Hashem's partners in creation. And this is again reflected because our function is to be partners in creation. Our objective, our purpose is to be partners in creation. That's reflected the same way that an animal's alliance function in the ecosystem is to be a predator and to keep things balanced. And that's reflected in its anatomy and in its physiology. We are designed <coughs> to create, to make change, to achieve. And that's reflected in our physiology very clearly in the fact that one of the most powerful things that a person can do to improve their emotional well-being and to improve self-esteem. Imagine that someone's, you know, someone's feeling down and they're like, oh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm no good at anything and blah, blah, blah. And they're just feeling really down. Maybe someone has, you know, a substantial self-esteem issue. Maybe they're just having a really bad day. And when someone's moping like that and you come along to them and you say, no, it's not true. You're amazing. You're amazing. Right? What are they going to say? 
You're going to say, shut up. No, I'm not. Right? That's, that's not what people need to hear. It's like, if I think that I'm not amazing, coming along and saying, you're amazing, is most likely to just frustrate me. Because I don't believe that it's true. So all you're doing is being annoying. And that's what they're probably going to say is, shut up. No, I'm not. What can you do to make someone who feels that they're not use, that they're not useful and they're not capable and, and change that? Don't tell them. Show them. If you can get someone to take on a, a project that's going to make them learn something, or it's going to make them do something that they thought they weren't able to do, or it's going to make them work with people and make change in other people's lives, all of these things are acts of creation. All of these things are achieving. We're changing something. We're creating an outcome that wasn't going to happen without our Tselemelekim, which means that's an act of creation. And because that's what we're designed to do, that will almost invariably make us feel better. It will increase our self-esteem. It will increase our emotional well-being. It will increase our mental well-being. Why? The same way that a lion despite the fact that living in the wild is difficult and dangerous, that's where the lion is true, living true as illustrated by the fact that that's what it's anatomically designed to do. And that's where it will ultimately be the healthiest and the happiest. The same thing is true for us. First of all, just as people, as human beings, when we're creative, we're achieving, that's when we end up feeling the happiest, almost invariably. The more productive we are, the more things we're doing that are making a difference, the more we're engaging in creation and being partners in creation, because that's what we were designed to do. We're living true to our purpose and true to our nature, and we will end up better off because that's freedom. That's the freedom to live in line with what we were designed to, the way we were designed to live naturally. And the things <laughs> that, what you know, are there to direct us to behave differently while we're philosophically in a state of freedom, if we're choosing without anyone forcing us to, neurologically, it's not. We've had things that were not supposed to be there that were introduced and that's messing up our decision-making apparatus. It's not really free. We're not living free to the way that we were designed to live. And for us as Yidin, with a nefesh kiss, with a part of Hashem that was put in this world to live inside of a nefesh abahamis and inside of a body, to learn Torah and to do mitzvahs and to make a dir betachtonim, the fact is, it's not an easy life. We have a lot of rules, a lot of do's, a lot of don'ts, a lot of obligations, a lot of prohibitions. And whilst it doesn't necessarily seem intuitively like this is really freedom, this is living true to our purpose it's living true to our function it's living true to what we were naturally designed to do to the role and function we were naturally designed to live and to the way we were designed to live and as with every animal when it lives true to its nature and it, it it's makes decisions in line with the way it was naturally supposed to behave without having been tainted and co-opted by things that make it make the wrong decisions, in which case it's not actually naturally free neurologically. Neurologically is probably not quite the right word, but in terms of its decision-making processes, 
It's not the decisions it was supposed to be making. It was messed up by something foreign that was introduced that co-opted it. It's the same thing for us. Living life of Torah mitzvahs is demanding. It's not easy. But the fact is, this is our nature. This is who we are. And ultimately, it's the thing that's going to allow us to live a life in which we fulfill our purpose and we play our function and our role. And, you know, it, it comes with hiccups. You know, living in the wild is dangerous. It's not always super pretty, to be frank. And, you know, it's it's living amidst this life at times. It, you know, it, it, we, we all have things that we struggle with. But those struggles themselves are also part of the picture and part of what we're naturally designed to do. When animals in the wild struggle and they have to run for their lives, that running for their lives is what keeps them fit. It's what keeps them healthy. That's what they're designed to do. And if they weren't doing that, they'd end up unfit, they'd end up unhealthy, and then their likelihood of ending up clinically depressed would go up astronomically. So yes, they're running for their lives, but that's the way they're supposed to live. And in running for their lives, they're living free and true to who they are and what they are. And if they manage to escape with their life, they'll be healthier for it. And this is what the life of Torah and Mitzvah is the ultimate freedom. Pesach is manche Ruseinu, because Pesach is the beginning of the journey to Matan Torah, to learning about what we're designed to do and what we're here for and what our role in the universe is and what our role in the ecosystem is and what our function is, what our purpose is. And by extension of that, how we are naturally supposed to live and the life that's going to be the most truly free of being co-opted and free and true to who we really are and, and, and what we're naturally designed for. And just to take it, a, you know, a, a step further, and I've got a couple of minutes left, the Pesach Seder, at the, at, the, at the Arizal's Pesach Seder, the Arizal was ecstatic in a way that he never was any other time of the year. Rizal was more joyous at the Pesach Seder than he was on Purim. He was more joyous at the Pesach Seder than he was on Simchas Torah. Rizal was, had an unmatched joy specifically at the Pesach Seder. The Pesach Seder is not a time that we generally think of as being super joyous. Obviously, it's a Yom Tov and, you know, there's happiness and joy on Yom Tov. But Sukkot is called Chag which is just celebration. It's not a celebration of something, it's just celebration. We have Simchas Torah, Simchas Torah, and we all know how I have Simchas Torah, and Purim, more of the same. But the Arizal is a greater Purim Surah than any of those. And if we, if, you know, as soon as we understand the level that Arizal was operating at, it makes a lot of sense. Because what happened on Pesach, the original Pesach, Zman Cheroseinu, who took us out of Egypt? We say in the Haggadah, wasn't a shliach, it wasn't a malach, it wasn't an angel, it wasn't a godly entity, it was God, period. Hashem himself took us out. And what happens every year on the Yom Tov? We know that 
in the Megillah says, these days will be recalled and done. And what it means, the Pshad is that we will recall the story every year and enact it when we do the mitzvahs of Purim. But the Mizrach Magid said, Niskarim Manasim means these days are recalled, Niskarim. And when we recall them properly, the way that we're supposed to, Naasim, they actually happen again. And whatever spiritual state the world was in at that original time is refreshed and renewed when we recall it properly by doing Yom Tov properly. So at the Pesach Seder, when we're at the Seder and we're connecting with the Yom Tov and with this message and we're doing, you know, really getting into the Pesach Seder and experiencing it properly, Hashem, the, the Hashem himself who took us out of Egypt that an angel wouldn't have been able to take us out of because it would have been too much and the angels would have been overwhelmed by Egypt. The only entity that was capable of taking us out of Egypt was Hashem himself, Hashem's essence. No layers, no angels, just Hashem. That same just Hashem is present at our Pesach said. No, 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 no. This is Atmos. This is like way, Kesa is like, yeah, like all the way down there, like way, way down. Um, it's Atmos, and that's at the Pesach Seder. And so the Arizal who was in touch with that was just like over the moon because it was like, whoa, this Atmos isn't at Simchas Torah and Purim the way it is, at, the way Hashem took us out of Egypt. And he is at the Pesach Seder. And that's ultimately who we are. Who we are deep down inside is a part of Hashem. It's a part of Atmos. And at the Pesach Seder, <coughs> we are exposed to and in the presence of our true source, of who we really are, where we come from, and what we live to connect to and to become one with again. And that's the ultimate state of freedom, connecting to that and becoming one with Atmos which we do to a degree every time we learn Torah. And we do that to a degree every time we do mitzvahs and every time we help people, etc. That is our truest ultimate freedom. That's the, the epitome and the essence of living true to who we are. And so the Pesach Seder is a time when we experience the objective of what we're here to do, and we, we're, we're in the presence of Atmos. And that is the, the epitome of the natural state that we're supposed to live in. And that's why the Ariza was in that state of ecstasy and joy. And that's what the Pesach Seder, ultimately that's, you know, that, that's what's happening at the Pesach Seder. And we have the opportunity, if we can, amid all the present, preparations and craziness and everything else and the truth is in a way with all the challenges that come with having Erev Pesach on a Shabbos it also sort of in some ways it can be stressful but it also means that we're not spending the whole Erev Pesach cooking and frantic and crazy because Friday had to take that role and be cooking and frantic and crazy and there's only so crazy you can be on Shabbos you're not even allowed to prepare for Pesach on Shabbos you can't start preparing the Seder until Shabbos is over so it sort of creates that space for us to be able to think about what's going on and what this is all about and to really come into the Pesach Seder in that frame of mind and to really nizkarim manasim and to really engage with the Pesach Seder and experience it properly and to, 
to be in the presence of Atmos and to be able to, you know, really take advantage of that and to, to be in that state of chairos, of freedom, living to the ultimate truth of who we are and why we're here, and to take away from that and to take that freedom with us for the whole year. Chaim. Thank you for the title. Like I said, it's the only kickoff I'll ever be uh, requested to participate in. <laughs> Thank you. I have a question. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. So, so as you said, you know, through like addiction or introducing things that we're not supposed to naturally have in our systems, we change the chemical compounds in our brain, whatnot. But learning Hasidus changes your brain. So could one say that maybe learning Hasidus and really delving into it could be a remedy to addiction? I, uh, I thought you were going to say to the, or to the things that we were talking about, to addiction. So, I think addiction creates physiological loops and automatic processes like habits, for example, people confuse habits for memory. Habits are a completely separate thing to memory. And a lot of the research that's that that you know that was done about this, and it's fascinating. It's very it's very sad, but there was a guy who had a virus, a viral infection in his brain, and it literally consumed the part of the brain that's associated with memory. And he had zero memory. He would get up, eat breakfast, go back to bed, get up, eat breakfast. He would eat breakfast multiple times a day because he had no idea that he'd eaten breakfast. He had no memory. His memory came to a complete halt. And there was a, one time he moved to a new place. So memories from before he had already formed. I don't know that he lost those, but he was unable to form any new memories. And he actually moved to a new place. And his wife would take him for a walk around the block every day. But she couldn't let him out of his sight. He didn't know his address. And she would bring him, like if you would take him in front of the house and ask him, which house do you live in? He wouldn't know. He didn't remember. But ask him his address. He didn't know the name of the street. didn't know anything. And then one day he got up and walked out of the house and they were freaking out. They were like, we're never going to find him. And they had search parties going crazy, looking everywhere. <laughs> they come back to the house to regroup and he's sitting there on the couch. And what happened was he went for a walk and he didn't remember. But because habits are a distinct thing from memory, his brain already knew that when you have this trigger, you do this action. When you see this tree and this house, that's the corner, you turn left because he'd done that so many times, his brain had learned the habits. And by habit, he followed the habits and ended up at home, even though he didn't remember his address or what his house looked like. So habits are a completely distinct and separate thing from memory. And so when you talk about habits, what happens is the brain learns to go on autopilot and just do things based on stimuli without stopping to think and without actually making a decision. And the reason habits are there are to make us do things more efficiently so we don't have to make so many decisions, but it can also go wrong. <clears throat> and addiction is kind of like an extreme version of that where <coughs> things sort of can almost flow automatically and bypass the decision-making process. So. Yeah, so, <coughs> so 
I think that there are a few components to overcoming addiction and getting into recovery. And I think that Chassidus is going to be a very powerful tool that's going to be part of that. But I think there's going to be more. I, you know, I, I would never suggest that someone who is, you know, in a state of active addiction and trying to get into recovery should just learn Chassidus and not do anything else. Learning Chassidus is going to be a very important part will be a very powerful tool in helping with that process. But there are, you know, there are physiological things that have happened that also need to be addressed. That's going to require likely more than just learning Chassidus. But yes, it would be powerful, but it's, I, I, I would be very hesitant to suggest that on its own, it's going to be enough. That being said, if we go to the less extreme example or version, which is, you know, the things we were talking about, just things in life that we're choosing freely, but not really because they're messing us up and they weren't supposed to be there. Learning Chassidus is going to be a very, very effective tool in, you know, in it, it's like reintroducing things that are going to pull the direction in the other, pull the decision-making in the opposite direction and help recalibrate things so that our decision-making processes get less messed up. So I would say that it would be, a, you know, a, a substantial but partial, still going to require a lot of effort, but a substantial, you know, remedy towards that at a much less than addiction level. But at that level, there's, you're going to need a lot more than just that. Yeah. Well, not you, hopefully, but, just Shem, but a person who is in a state of addiction and, you know, no one should ever get there and everyone who is should have a refusal and take me on mamish. But it's, there's, there's more, you know, there are physiological things that happen that, that, require more than just chassidus. But yes, chassidus is going to be a powerful tool in the picture. So to take that in the sense of feeling our own freedom, we can only truly feel our own freedom once we remove these things that are sending us in the wrong direction. Like once the the animal in the wild starts <laughs> eating cheesecake and sitting on the couch then it can go back to doing what it needs to be do, doing does that um, make sense yeah I, I i think it's a little bit more complex though here because part of our purpose is to struggle with things so as long as we're even if we haven't it depends what you mean by removing if it's something that we're able to just remove from the picture then yes absolutely that's the best idea but a lot of times we have to struggle to remove things from our lives and it's not so easy, but that struggle in and of itself, as long as we're in the struggle and we're working on it and trying, that struggle is our purpose. So we are living free and true to ourselves if we're in the fight because we're designed to be living that fight. We're not designed to have won the fight, right? We're not designed to be perfect. We're designed to live a life in line with Torah and striving for perfection and as long as we're putting in the effort and struggling with those things that is living true our purpose as long as we're actually really trying mm -hmm. so that so the process of doing that that is the freedom that we're correct mm -hmm. basically doing our best to live a Torah true life is the ultimate freedom because that's what we're designed to do we're not designed to to be post the achievement of perfection we're designed to be doing our best and as long as that's what we're doing we are living 100 percent true to ourselves because that's that's our function in the ecosystem is to try our best to do the best we can according to term